Chapter 4, Paul and the Trinity. Apparently, Paul did not call Jesus God. No more militant foe ever lashed out in anger at early Christians than a man named Saul, Acts 8, verses 1 to 3. Nor did a more learned theologian enter the early church than this same Saul who became known as Paul, a prolific writer and a leading spokesman for first century Christianity. Branded by some modern demythologizers as an impossible visionary and by others as a psychotic drug user, Paul has continued to withstand the harsh judgment of his critics and today remains a standard bearer for Christianity. Because of the extreme fervency of his belief, Paul had aligned himself with a group about whom Jesus warned that there would be a time coming when, quote, whoever kills you, kills you Christians, that is, will think that he has offered service to God. John 16, verse 2. Paul's misguided zeal led him to adopt a murderous policy of persecution against the newly founded Christian sect. It is not the purpose of this book to assess the whole range of Paul's theology. Specifically, we want to examine his harmony or disharmony with both the Old Testament and the words of Jesus, the Messiah, on the key issue of the nature of the Godhead. Paul claimed special revelation from the resurrected Jesus. While many may contend that reason and revelation are incompatible, it is our premise that the two are not at odds. Paul serves to illustrate this point. No part of the revelation given to Paul by Jesus assaults reason. Allowing for an element of progressive revelation, Paul's Christianity is not in disagreement with the earlier teaching of the historical Jesus or with the other New Testament writers. Paul has not departed from the Messiah's doctrine of God. Highly placed in Jewish religious circles, Paul states that he was, quote, circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. That's in Philippians 3, verses 5 and 6. Without question, this background would have made him uncompromisingly monotheistic, a convinced advocate of belief in the one true God as a single person. I note that this is clearly demonstrated by Paul's declarations in 1 Corinthians 8, verses 4 and 6, Ephesians 4 and 6, and 1 Timothy 2, verse 5. In other areas of his theology, such as the relationship of the law to the new Jew-Gentile community, Paul expressly departs from his Pharisaic point of view. As a Pharisee, he could not have written Galatians 3 and 4. Under inspiration from the risen Jesus, he there declares the law of Moses to have been temporary. Paul's indifference to Mosaic legislation about circumcision makes the same point loudly and clearly. As we would expect, Paul's rabbinical training had instilled in him the firmest conviction that there was but one God, the creator of all things. It is evident that he agreed completely with the recently crucified Messiah about the law which Jesus had called the greatest of all commandments. 
To an inquiring scribe, the Messiah had said, and I quote, the foremost commandment is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and so on. We find that quoted in Mark 12, verses 29 and 30. As a Pharisee, Paul would unquestionably have endorsed the scribe's enthusiasm for Jesus' own unitary monotheism. Quote, right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one and there is no one else besides him. That's in Mark 12, verse 32. Paul's Jewish heritage had placed the single person God at the pinnacle of his belief. His devotion to the one God of the Hebrew Bible remained. After his conversion to Christianity, the prime motivating force behind all his activity. There's no hint anywhere in Paul's writings that he had ever disagreed with the early church about the person of God. His pre-conversion hostility was directed towards Jesus' claim to be the Messiah, which he thought constituted a threat to the established religion of the nation of Israel. Numerous recognized biblical scholars, after a careful examination of the evidence, do not think that Paul ever disturbed the waters of the Jewish conviction that God was a single person. Sidney Cave, for example, states, apparently Paul did not call Jesus God. That's found in Professor Cave's book, The Doctrine of the Person of Christ, written in 1925. C.J. Cadu agrees, I quote, Paul habitually differentiates Christ from God. That statement is from A Pilgrim's Further Progress, Dialogues on Christian Teaching, written in 1943. One may search Paul's writings in vain for a plain statement that Jesus is God, meaning a pre-existent, quote, eternal son, second member of a co-equal trinity. Hebrews 1, verse 8 alone, whether or not Paul wrote this book is unclear, may be claimed as a text in which Jesus is, in some sense, certainly called God. A handful of other texts may or may not contain a reference to Jesus as God. The evidence is disputed by scholars for grammatical and syntactical reasons. These verses certainly, therefore, cannot be relied on as proof texts, since we know that in the Bible the term, quote, God does not always mean the supreme God, it's impossible to substantiate Trinitarianism from isolated verses in which Jesus may or may not be referred to as, quote, God. The Trinitarian problem must be analyzed from the perspective of Paul's strictly monotheistic Jewish background as to say Luke's reports of Paul's ministry in Acts and, of course, his recorded epistles. One question is critical. If Paul became a Trinitarian or a Binitarian, when did that happen? Was he taught the Trinity by the other apostles, by revelation from Jesus, the Messiah, or was it slowly developed over the period of his lifetime? The reality finally bursting upon him drastically modifying his former belief in God as one person. There's simply no hard evidence to confirm any such development. 
Given the deep indoctrination of the Jewish mind in regard to monotheism, particularly in the case of this zealously religious Jew, the novelty of such a concept should have consumed pages of the Bible. When the very foundation of a religion is changed, some clear explanation is required. Such drastic theological revolutions do not pass unnoticed. Witness the volumes written and the sometimes bloody controversy waged by advocates of the Trinity against the protests of the strict Unitarians. A divine revelation to introduce belief in a tri-personal God would have been acceptable and reasonable. But where both revelation is lacking and reason assaulted, there is little basis for accepting such an extraordinary idea as the Trinity. In the words of a British clergyman, himself a Trinitarian, quote, reason is affronted and faith stands half aghast at the Trinity. Those are the words of Bishop Hurd in sermons preached at Lincoln's Inn, cited by John Wilson's book named Unitarian Principles Confirmed by Trinitarian Testimonies. When Paul was in attendance at the conference at Jerusalem, discussions centered around circumcision and other Old Testament laws. How far were these to be imposed upon Gentile Christians? Acts 15 verse 5 and following. The decision was rendered by James, the leader of the Jerusalem church. It was the same James who stated when writing to the scattered church as the, quote, 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad, James 1.1, you believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. That's James chapter 2, verse 19. At this point in church history, there's nothing which suggests a radical change of understanding about the nature of God. The absence of any new revelation defining the Trinity presents a problem to the Trinitarian writer E. Calvin Beisner when he defends the orthodox point of view in his book, God in Three Persons. We examine his work because he quotes the Apostle Paul in support of his thesis. Early in chapter 1, he cites the Nicene Creed as it was promulgated at the Council of Constantinople in 381 AD. Quote, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, light from light, true God from true God, and in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life. Beisner then asks the question, does the New Testament contain such a doctrine, that's the Trinity, either explicitly or implicitly? And if so, how does it? That's from Beisner's book, God in Three Persons, published in 1984. The answer which scholars give to both these questions, Beisner points out, are, quote, to say the least, widely variant. 
He maintains, nevertheless, that the Trinity is found in the Bible. The gist of his argument runs as follows. There is in the New Testament one and only one true God. There is a person called the Father, who is called God. There is a person called the Son, who is also called God. In the section entitled Monotheism in the New Testament, Beisner makes the excellent point that a monotheistic view, quote, pervades the whole outlook of Jesus. And he cites John 17, 3. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. Beisner then adds the evidence of Paul, who deliberately sets out to answer the question whether there are more gods than one. Paul's words are as follows. I quote, We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. But even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, and there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ. That's 1 Corinthians 8, verses 4 to 6. Beisner correctly points out that Paul's answer to the monotheistic question was that there is no God but one. This monotheistic viewpoint, he adds, rules the whole New Testament, but is nowhere more strongly stated than here in the writings of Paul. It is at this critical point in the argument that we must look carefully at what Paul actually says. All will agree about Paul's belief that there is only one God, but who, according to Paul, is that one God? Is there one God, the Father, which is Unitarianism, or one God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which would be Trinitarianism? Beisner appears to overlook Paul's crucially important definition of monotheism. I quote, To us Christians, there is but one God the Father. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6. Paul names the one God as the Father, and he adds no other person. He goes on to say, Certainly that there is one Lord Jesus Christ, but he does not say, here or anywhere else, that Jesus is the one God. The one God of Paul's monotheism, expressly stated and in harmony with everything we have read in the Old Testament and in the teaching of Jesus, is the Father alone. According to the ordinary rules of language, where we have a number of more than one, the prefix mono no longer applies. For instance, if a man has two wives, he's no longer monogamous, but polygamous. On this basis, with many Jews and Muslims, we question the validity of speaking of Trinitarianism as monotheism, certainly not as monotheism in the Hebraic Old Testament sense. It's hard for us to avoid the conclusion that three persons each of whom is called God, amounts to three gods. We are aware that this is denied by Trinitarians. 
However, we have also noted that a number of theologians complain that ordinary believers do think of the triune God tritheistically, as to say, as three gods. It's difficult not to sympathize with Hans Küng, who expresses, quote, the genuine concern of many Christians and the justified frustration of Jews and Muslims in trying to find in Trinitarian formulas the pure faith in one God. That's a quotation from Pinchas Lapid, Jewish Monotheism and Christian Trinitarian Doctrine. If Jesus or Paul anywhere had spoken the language of the Trinity that the three are one or the one is three, we could be compelled to consider it a part of revelation and accept it as Christian doctrine. I'll read that again. <clears throat> had Jesus or Paul anywhere spoken the language of the Trinity that, quote, the three are one or, quote, the one is three, we would be compelled to consider it a part of revelation and accept it as Christian doctrine. But history knows little of this sort of talk about the Godhead until 300 years after the ministry of Jesus. By that time, theology had passed into the hands of men who had not shared the close association of the apostles with Jesus, the Messiah, and who were products of a very different theological formation. We deplore, therefore, with Hans Küng, quote, the Hellenization of the Christian primordial message by Greek theology. It is one thing for Christians to maintain that there's only one God spoken of in the Bible. It's quite another thing to convince Christians that there are three persons in that one God. The capacity of theologians to persuade believers that two or three persons are really one God must rank as one of the great marvels of Christian history. We wonder how normally reasonable people can so readily accept what is ultimately declared to be an incomprehensible mystery. This is all the more remarkable when the Bible's own creedal statements never hint at any such terminology. There is no hint of a conundrum in the transparently simple affirmation that, quote, there is one God, the Father. 1 Corinthians 8 verse 6. Paul never relinquished the idea that one, with reference to God, meant numerically one. He obviously had not abandoned his Jewish unitary monotheism when he declared in a letter to Timothy, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. That's 1 Timothy 2 verse 5. Here, one person only, the Father, is declared to be the one God. In the same sentence, another individual is called the man, Christ Jesus. This imposes a considerable strain on Trinitarianism. Paul upholds the same creed in his letter to the church at Ephesus. He speaks of, quote, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father 
of glory. Ephesians 1, verse 17. And goes on to assert in a later chapter that, quote, there is one body and one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Ephesians 4, verses 4 to 6. We all understand, quote, the one spirit and the one hope to be numerically one. But God, for Paul, is also one in the mathematical sense. He is, quote, the father of our Lord Jesus Messiah. Paul's point of view is no different when he writes to the Galatians. I quote, now a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. That's Galatians 3 verse 20. There's a remarkable consistency in Paul's writings when he speaks of God as a single being, namely the Father of Jesus. To say that Paul made the transition to belief in a multipersonal being is most problematic. His creedal declarations are distinctly in line with the unrestricted monotheism of Jesus and of the whole Jewish heritage which they shared. When Paul insists, quote, that there is no God but one, he goes on to explain, however, not all men have this knowledge, 1 Corinthians 8, verses 4 and 7, we're tempted to think that not much has changed since the first century. Condensing Paul's plain statements in 1 Corinthians 8, 4 and 6, we have the assertion that, quote, there is no God but the Father. Trinitarianism must surely bow before this pure monotheism. Perhaps Thomas Jefferson's polemic against Trinitarian dogma may not be too harsh. He regarded it as a relapse from the true religion Jesus founded in the unity of God into unintelligible polytheism. Writing to Jared Sparks, a minister friend, he regretted the subsequent growth of the dogma, which he called the, quote, hocus-pocus phantasm of a god like another Cerberus, that's to say the three-headed dog in Greek mythology who guarded the gates to Hades, with one body and three heads. That's quoted in C.B. Sanford, The Religious Life of Thomas Jefferson. It was Paul who expressed to the church at Corinth his fear, quote, lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we've not preached, you put up with this beautifully. At 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 3 and 4. We contend that the notion of God as one person is simplicity itself. A God who is two or three persons, yet only one being, is complex in the extreme. Not the least of the problems of the Trinity is the fact that Jesus and God are obviously, in the Bible, two distinct persons in the modern sense of that word, as much different 
individuals as any father and son. Not without reason, the words of Paul have been vulnerable to the criticism that they sometimes seem contradictory. This has added fuel to the flames of the Trinitarian controversy. Peter warned that there are in Paul's writings, quote, some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures, to their own destruction. 2 Peter 3, verse 16. If this is so, there is all the more reason to base our understanding of Paul's doctrine of God on his explicit creedal declarations. By no means should we allow other, less clear passages in his writings to obscure the transparently simple propositions with which he defines the Godhead. Philippians chapter 2. Many have viewed Paul's statement in Philippians 2, verses 5 to 8, as proof that he believed in a Messiah who was both preexistent and God in his own right. The passage reads as follows. Have this attitude among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. A number of Paul's primary statements about the one God should be recalled as we approach this passage. Firstly, to the only wise God through Jesus Christ be the glory forever. Romans 16 verse 27. Secondly, for there's one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. 1 Timothy 2 verse 5. Thirdly, there's one body, one Lord, one faith, one God and Father of all. Ephesians 4 verses 4 to 6. Fourthly, there's no God but one. There is one God, the Father, and one Lord, Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 8 verses 4 and 6. Fifthly, the blessed and only Sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. That's 1 Timothy 6, verses 15 and 16. If Paul knew Jesus was a co-equal, pre-existent member of the Godhead, could he have penned the text quoted above, which obviously restrict the one God to one person, the Father? If so, the charge that he had confused his converts about the nature of the Godhead would seem to be in order. It is also remarkable that Luke, who chronicled Paul's ministry in the book of Acts, fails to make the slightest mention of Paul's newfound truth about the triune deity. Paul made the claim for himself that, quote, he did not shrink from declaring the whole purpose of God. 
Acts 20, verse 27. Surely somewhere this momentous knowledge about the Trinitarian Godhead would have emerged in his writings and sermons if he had considered it an important part of Christian tradition. Paul made repeated reference to the one God, meaning the Father alone, even in contexts where both the Father and the Son are mentioned together. And there's a striking absence of any unambiguous statement showing Jesus to be the pre-existent God-man, a member of the eternal Godhead and fully deserving the title God in the absolute sense. Paul does not blur the distinction between the one God, the Father, and Jesus, his Son, the Lord Messiah. However much he insists that the two function in complete harmony, he never forgets that the Father is the one God of his monotheistic heritage. It's perplexing to think that in the midst of all his insistence that God is a unique person, he would, without explanation, ask us to believe that Jesus is also that one God. Such a drastic overthrow of the framework of true religion would have aroused the anger of the Jewish segment of the church and have been the cause of extended controversy. There is no evidence for any such debate. We must avoid at all costs reading our own 20th century interpretations into the writings of the first century church. Words must be permitted to mean what they meant in their own context. Paul's thinking is consistent. He expressed himself everywhere, elsewhere, with complete clarity when he defined who the one God was. With many commentators, ancient and modern, we question whether the early church really understood this passage in Philippians as a forerunner of the Nicene formula that Jesus was very God of very God, eternally pre-existent and creator. Professor James Dunn approaches the text attempting to lay aside the tendency to read later Christological developments into Paul's ideas. I quote, Our task has once again been the crucial but difficult one of trying to attune our 20th century ears to the concepts and overtones of the 50s and 60s of the first century AD in the Eastern Mediterranean. That's from James Dunn's book, Christology in the Making. James Dunn concludes that, quote, the pre-existence incarnation interpretation of Philippians 2, verses 6 to 11, owes more to the later Gnostic Redeemer myth than it does to Philippians 2, verses 6 to 11. He warns us of the danger of reading into Paul's words the conclusions of a later generation of theologians, the so-called fathers of the Greek church in the centuries following the completion of the New Testament writings. It is widely acknowledged that we tend to find in Scripture exactly what we have conceived as already being there. 
since none of us can easily face the threatening possibility that our so-called received understanding does not coincide with the Bible. The problem is, of course, compounded if we are involved in teaching or preaching the Bible. A religious doctrine which has been accepted intellectually and emotionally is dislodged with great difficulty. The context of Paul's remarks in Philippians 2 shows him urging the members of his congregation to be humble. It has been asked whether it is in any way probable that Paul would enforce this simple lesson by asking his readers to adopt the frame of mind of one who, having been eternally God, made the decision to become man. Is that sort of comparison in any way relevant to our human condition? It might also seem strange for Paul to refer to a pre-existent Jesus as Jesus the Messiah, thus reading back into eternity the name and office he received at birth. Paul elsewhere does not hesitate to call Jesus a man. He often defines the Messiah's role by drawing on parallels between Adam and the man Jesus. This is clearly shown in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 45 to 47, where Paul writes, I quote, So it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam, Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. Paul insists that Jesus is still even at his second coming, man, as was Adam, who was made from the dust of the ground. Paul notes in Romans 5, verses 12 to 15, through the one man, Adam, sin entered into the world. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him. Who is to come. For if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the free gift of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to many. In Philippians 2, Paul described the exalted status of the man, Jesus. As the reflection of God, his Father, he was in, quote, the form of God. The text does not say he was God, but did not consider such so-called equality with God a privilege to be exploited for his own glory. Jesus, who as Messiah was invested with a functional equality with God and was destined to sit at the right hand of the Father, humbled himself by being the servant of mankind, even to the point of submitting to a criminal's death on the cross. Jesus did not take advantage of his unique royal position as God's legal representative, but adopted the character of a slave or servant. The contrast is between the rank of God, Jesus being God's commissioner, and the rank of a servant. The contrast is not, as is often thought, between being God in eternity 
and becoming a man. Philippians 2 verse 7, I note that there's no mention of actually being born. The word yenomenos simply means becoming. Jesus adopted the status of servant and appeared as an ordinary man. Giving up his right to rule and refusing Satan's offer of power over the world's kingdoms, Matthew 4, verses 8 and 9, Jesus obediently played the role of a servant willing even to suffer at the hands of a hostile world. What Paul has in mind is the career of the man, Messiah, or Christ Jesus. 1 Timothy 2, verse 5. Not the incarnation of a pre-existent member of the Godhead. Jesus' humility is the exact opposite of the arrogance and disobedience of Adam. The former did not abuse his God-given status as reflecting God his Father, nor did he take advantage of his privilege for selfish ends. Adam, under the devil's influence, tried to grasp at an equality with God to which he was not entitled. Jesus, by perfect obedience to God, was able to mirror the mind and personality of the one God his Father. In describing the exemplary life of the Messiah on earth, Paul intended no reference to a pre-existent being. He was appealing to the Philippians to be humble like Jesus. Jesus had been a model of humility and service, yet he'd been born into the royal family of the house of David and had qualified through self-denial the exalted status of world ruler, as Psalm 2 had predicted centuries before he was born. When asked by Pilate, so you are a king? Jesus' answer was, you speak correctly. This is why I was born, and for this I've come into the world. John 18, verse 37. Jesus overcame a natural ambition to conquer the world, Though he will legitimately conquer Antichrist's forces at his second coming, his example of patient submission to the will of God had led to his exaltation to the right hand of the Father. The point was not that a pre-existent member of the Trinity had regained a position temporarily surrendered, but that a real human being, the Messiah, in whom the character of the Father was perfectly reflected, Colossians 1 verse 15, had demonstrated humility and obedience and had been supremely vindicated and exalted by God. Paul elsewhere describes Jesus' career as a demonstration of humility when he observed that, quote, although the Messiah was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. The Messiah though designated king of Israel and the world, sacrificed himself for others. Without, of course, making the same claims as Jesus, Paul uses similar language of his own career. He was, quote, poor, though making many rich, having nothing, yet possessing all things. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 10. And, quote, he sought no glory, when we might have been burdensome, 
as the apostles of Christ. As Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 6, Paul also saw himself and fellow apostles as messianic suffering servants when he applied Isaiah's servant prophecies to his own mission, as we find in Acts 13 verse 47, compared with that Isaiah 42 verse 6 and 49 verse 6. The traditional Trinitarian reading of Philippians 2 depends almost entirely on understanding Jesus' condition in the form of God as a reference to a pre-existent life as God in heaven. Instead of legal identity with God as a human person on earth, unfortunately translators have done much to bolster this view. The verb was in the phrase was in the form of God occurs frequently in the New Testament and by no means carries the sense of existing in eternity, though some versions try to force that meaning into it. In 1 Corinthians 11 verse 7, Paul said that a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image of God and the image of the glory of God. The verb is here is a form of the same verb rendered was, describing Jesus as in the form of God. Paul's intention was not to introduce the vast subject of an eternally divine second member of the Trinity who became man, but to teach an important lesson in humility based on the example of the historical Jesus. There's no clear evidence in this passage that Paul was a Trinitarian who believed in the traditional doctrine of the Incarnation. We suggest the following rendering of the original of Philippians 2, verses 5 to 8. Adopt the same attitude as Messiah Jesus, who, though having divine status, did not consider his equality with God something to be exploited for his own advantage, but made nothing of his rank by taking the role of a slave and by being like other men. Appearing to be like an ordinary man, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death by crucifixion. There's nothing in this text which requires us to think of a pre-existent being. The Messiah's exaltation to the right hand of God is the fulfillment of Psalm 110 verse 1. It has been well argued that the text should read, in the name of Jesus every knee will bow, not at the name of Jesus. Thus the supreme exaltation of Jesus to the right hand of the Father does not alter the fact that all that Jesus accomplished is for the glory of God. The Lord at God's right hand, it must be remembered, is Adonai, Lord with a lowercase l, which is never the title of deity. To emphasize the exalted position of the resurrected Messiah, his authority over all rivals, and his supreme position in God's plan, Paul wrote to the people at Colossae. I quote, And he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by, literally the word is in, for in him all things were created, 
both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by, literally, through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Colossians 1, verse 16. Some have considered this passage sufficient evidence to overthrow all Paul said elsewhere about the Christian creed as belief in, quote, one God, the Father. Several points should be noted. The Trinitarian scholar, Professor James Dunn, speaking of the above passage in Colossians 1, verses 15 to 20, makes a crucial observation. We must grasp the fact that Paul was not seeking to win men to belief in a pre-existent being. He did not have to establish the viability of speaking of pre-existent wisdom. Such language was commonly used, common ground, and was no doubt familiar to most of his readers. Nor was he arguing that Jesus was a particular pre-existent being. What he was saying is that wisdom whatever precisely that term meant for his readers, is now most fully expressed in Jesus. Jesus is the exhaustive embodiment of divine wisdom. All the divine fullness dwelt in him. The mistake which many make unconsciously is to turn Paul's argument around and make it point in the wrong direction. Because language which seems to envisage pre-existent divine beings is strange to modern ears, it is easy to assume by an illegitimate transfer of 20th century presuppositions to the 1st century that this is why the language was used, i.e. to promote belief in pre-existent divine intermediaries, and that Paul was attempting to identify Christ with or as such a being. That's from Professor James Dunn's book, Christology in the Making. We quote Professor Dunn at length here because of his important statement about the danger of reading Paul as though he must have been familiar with the much later decisions of church councils. Paul should be read, in fact, in his own Hebrew context. Professor Dunn does not write as an anti-Trinitarian, but he finds no support for the Trinity in this passage. He continues, but Paul's talk was of course conditioned by the culture and cosmological presuppositions of his own day. So he was not arguing for the existence of pre-existent divine beings or for the existence of any particular divine being. And the meaning is, Given the understanding of this language within Jewish monotheism that Jesus is to be seen as the wise activity of God, as the wisdom and embodiment of God's wisdom more fully than any previous manifestation of the same wisdom, whether in creation or in covenant. Dunn's analysis is sufficient to show that this passage of Scripture does not establish belief in a deity of two or three persons. Several further points should be made. 
Paul specifically calls Jesus the firstborn of all creation. Taken in its natural sense, the expression firstborn excludes the notion of an uncreated eternal being. To be born requires a beginning. God's firstborn is, quote, the highest of the kings of the earth. Psalm 89, verse 27. Paul employs a well-known messianic title. Jesus, in the mind of Paul, is not God, but the Messiah, and there is an enormous difference. According to many translations, Paul says that, quote, all things were created by him, the Messiah. The prepositions in Colossians 1, verse 16, need to be translated exactly as seen in the marginal versions of standard Bibles. What Paul actually wrote was that all things, in this case thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities, were created in Jesus, through him and for him. It was not that Jesus was the creator in the opening verse of Genesis, but that he was the center of God's cosmic hierarchy. All authorities were to be subjected to the Son, who would finally hand all back to his Father, the principal to whom he owed allegiance, so that, quote, God, the Father, might be all in all. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 28. I note that according to J.H. Moulton, in his Grammar of New Testament Greek, Colossians 1.16 should be rendered, for because of him, Jesus. This gives a very different sense from by him. I note also the expositor's Greek commentary on this verse says, in him, the Greek is en afto, this should not mean by him. Translators seem to have paid little attention to these authorities. It would be strange to say that Jesus created all things for himself. Colossians 1.16 The point is rather that God made all things with Jesus in mind, with him as the occasion for creation, and thus for the creation of Jesus. As firstborn, Jesus is heir to the universe which God brought into existence with his promised son, as the designated heir of the creation. Paul is focusing in this passage on the new creation initiated by the resurrection of Jesus, who is the firstborn from the dead, as in Colossians 1 verse 18. The reference to creation of angelic authorities does not imply the existence of Jesus at the time of the original creation. As always, context is the important factor in interpretation. Paul's concentration in this passage is on inheritance, kingdom, and authorities. Colossians 1, verses 12, 13, and 16. This strongly suggests that he has in mind the Messiah's headship over the entire creation as the new order which God had in mind from the beginning, and of which Jesus, as firstborn, is the appointed head. Expressions which, as Don says, sound remote to 20th century ears, and therefore need especially careful handling, 
provide no basis for belief in Jesus' pre-existence. Paul believed that God planned that the Messiah should have preeminence over all that has been created, visible or invisible, in heaven or on earth, either thrones, dominions, rulers or authorities. Jesus was the starting point of all God's creative activity, the key to God's entire purpose as well as the embodiment of God's wisdom. The Messiah, however, was not an eternal being, but a human person to be revealed at his appointed time, now qualified as firstborn from the dead to, quote, head up the new order. Ephesians 1, verse 10. Many believers in the personal pre-existence of Jesus have appealed to the words of the Apostle in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4, where he says of the Israelites in the wilderness that they all drank, quote, the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. As John Cunningham stated, it is argued from this text that Christ personally accompanied the people of Israel as they journeyed through the wilderness to the Promised Land. To lend support to this theme, Deuteronomy 32 verse 4 and Psalm 18 verse 2 are cited because Yahweh, God, is there described as a rock. It is reasoned that since God is the rock and Christ is also the rock who accompanied Israel, Christ must therefore be Yahweh or the God of the Old Testament. That's from an article by John Cunningham entitled That Rock Was Christ published by Restoration Fellowship in 1981. We are indebted to this writer for the substance of the argument as well as to James Dunn's Christology in the Making. A text which surveys God's activity over the ages says, quote, God spoke long ago to the fathers through the prophets in many portions and in many ways. But in contrast, in these last days, God has spoken to us in his Son. Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2. This would seem to confirm that until his human birth, Jesus was not Son of God, nor God's messenger to man. This same book of Hebrews points out that the word was spoken through angels in Old Testament times. Hebrews 2, verse 2. If the message to Israel was through the same pre-existent Jesus who became man, the writer of this New Testament book seems to lack any such information. Messages were given through prophets and angels, certainly, but never was there a hint that the Old Testament message was transmitted through the one who later came to be identified as the Son. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 4, taken by itself, without considering its context or Paul's use of Hebrew ways of thinking, might suggest that Christ was alive before his birth. There are numerous other scriptures in which angels were the instruments used to convey God's messages to Israel. Stephen speaks of Moses and the giving of the law. 
Quote, this is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai. He received the oracles to pass on to you. Acts 7 verse 38. Acts 7 verse 53 states that they had received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Paul also speaks of the role of angels in contrast to a later revealer called the, quote, seed, that's to say the Messiah. I quote, why the law? Paul asked. It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels until the seed, Jesus, would come, to whom the promise had been made. Galatians 3 verse 19. Paul goes on to confirm the oneness of God. He says, Now a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Galatians 3.20 It's clear in each of these passages that the giving of the law through angels forms an important part of the argument. But it should be noted that the common theme is the superiority of the gospel to the law. The law was mediated only by angels, but the good news or gospel of the kingdom was brought by the Son of God and is therefore incomparably superior. Certainly Paul did not believe that Jesus was a pre-existing angel. Christ could not have had any part in giving the law to Israel or in ministering to the Israelites in the wilderness. Paul's use of the word seed, or descendant, is most pointed. The seed, identified as Christ, had not yet arrived and was not yet active in God's service. It's clear that for Paul, the seed referred to here, and in other places, the seed of Abraham, Genesis 22 verse 18, the seed of Judah, Genesis 49 verse 10, and the seed of David, as in 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 to 14, compared with Isaiah 11, verse 1, and Romans 1, verse 3, and 2 Timothy 2, verse 8. It's clear that that seed means specifically Jesus the Christ, the promised descendant of the patriarchs and of David. Romans 1 verse 3 contains a direct reference to the origin of Christ as God's Son. The Gospel concerns, and I quote, His Son, God's Son, who was born of a descendant, seed of David according to the flesh. The repeated insistence on a son who was born of a woman and who was the descendant of a human being is inescapable. The Messiah was to arise from the human race. This is exactly what the Jews of the day and the early church believed and expected. For Paul to have taught that the Messiah was actually and personally present with Israel in the wilderness, already the Son of God, would have been a staggering contradiction of the words of the prophets. 
We must guard against an over-literal, wooden reading of 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4, bearing in mind the Hebraic use of symbolism and Jewish ways of speaking. It's not uncommon for Scripture to use the verb to be in the less-than-literal sense. Jesus said, quote, This cup is my blood of the new covenant, Luke 22, verse 20. The verb is does not imply one-to-one -one identity. The language is figurative. The cup represents my blood. The immediate context of 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4, contains clues to the way Paul is thinking. Paul sees Israel's experiences in the wilderness as examples, types, or models of present Christian experience. As Paul writes, quote, these things happened to them typically, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11. The passing of the Israelites through the Red Sea was a figure or type of Christian baptism. The so-called spiritual food mentioned in verse 3 is clearly the manna miraculously given daily to Israel over a period of 40 years. They also drank from a, quote, spiritual rock. To use this single reference to the rock which followed Israel as proof of a pre-human Jesus misses the point of Paul's lesson. It also overlooks the fact that Jews did not expect the Messiah to be anything other than a human person. A closer look at the Old Testament story Paul has in mind shows that there are two incidents involving a rock recorded during the wilderness wanderings of the Israelites. It's important to notice the difference between them. The first occurred just after the miraculous giving of the manna. Israel arrived at Rephidim and immediately began to complain about a lack of water, whereupon God commanded Moses to strike the rock. Water gushed out, and the people's thirst was satisfied. Exodus 17, verses 1 to 6. The striking of the rock typified the fact that Christ, our rock, was later to be smitten for the sins of mankind. The water also foreshadowed the miraculous giving of the Holy Spirit, the water of life described by Jesus. I quote, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. John 7, verse 37. The rock in the wilderness was a representation of the Messiah who was yet to come as provider of the Holy Spirit. The second rock incident occurred towards the end of the wandering in the wilderness. Again, Israel complained of a lack of water, and again God provided for their needs. This time he clearly instructed Moses to speak to the rock, but in his anger Moses disobeyed and struck the rock twice. Numbers chapter 20 verses 1 to 12. In smiting the rock, instead of speaking to it, Moses was guilty of destroying the meaning of the so-called type or example. The rock in Exodus typified Christ in the flesh. 
smitten to give to us the water of life, while the rock in numbers typified Christ, our high priest, not to be smitten twice, but only to be addressed to supply the water of life. The first incident occurred at the beginning of the wanderings, the second at the end. Both incidents form a parable of Christ's continuous presence with his people now during their wilderness wanderings, the Christian journey towards the promised land of the kingdom of God. The two incidents we have looked at took place in entirely different locations and there's a different Hebrew word for rock used in each place. In Exodus 17, the word is tzur, and in Numbers 20, it is selah. What then does Paul mean when he states that they drank of that spiritual rock which followed them? Obviously, a literal rock did not accompany Israel through the wilderness. A better answer is that Paul is using the language of Christian experience and reading it back into the Old Testament type. This is shown clearly by his reference to baptism at the beginning of his discussion. The Israelites were not literally baptized. In fact, we're told that the water did not come near them. They walked dryshod through the Red Sea. But their experience is a close enough parallel for Paul to say that they were, quote, baptized into Moses. Likewise, the rock did not literally follow them. It was simply a model or type or example of Christ accompanying Christians through life. This, in fact, is exactly what Paul himself asserts. All these things happen to them typically. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 11. The evidence is much too slight to support the idea that Paul was attempting to introduce a new dogma about a pre-existent God-man. This would clash with his own statements elsewhere about how the Christ came into being. If he were proposing that the Messiah was already really a person co-equal with God, such a radical departure from his Jewish heritage would require much more elaboration. We must guard against the mistake of reading later Trinitarian tradition into first-century Hebraic literature. The truth about Jesus' identity and origin must be based strictly on the information available from the writings of the early Church as recorded in the Scriptures. It's all too easy to fall into the trap of reading Scripture through lenses tinged with doctrines formulated in the 2nd to the 5th centuries. There are distinct prophecies relating to Jesus in the Old Testament, but none takes him outside the limits of the human family. Most will agree that the first prophecy concerning a coming Savior appears in Genesis, where God told the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. You shall bruise him on the heel, and he shall bruise you on the head. Genesis 3, verse 15. It was clearly the human descendant of Eve 
who would eventually subdue the serpent or Satan. Both Jews and Christians believe that this prophecy was to be fulfilled in the Messiah, but neither group finds anything in the text about the Messiah already being alive. When we hear Paul preaching to the Gentile world, represented by the men of Athens, his words are reminiscent of an Old Testament prophet. Referring to the one God of Israel, he says, and I quote, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Acts 17 verse 24. This is similar to Isaiah's statement. I quote, I the Lord am the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out the earth. Who was with me? Isaiah 44, verse 24. To interfere with this fundamental Jewish monotheism and introduce another uncreated person as an active agent in the Genesis creation is offensive to Paul's evident belief in the basic tenets of Jewish theology, primarily its unbending unitary monotheism. It was not until the fourth century over 300 years after the death of the founder of Christianity, that church officials found it necessary to formulate Trinitarian dogma officially and impose it on believers as a formal condition for membership in the church and for salvation. We must ask now how and why this happened. Many present-day believers have little exposure to the story of the development of the Trinitarian Creed. If neither Jesus nor Paul ever abandoned belief in the Old Testament concept of God as a single person, then just how did belief in a Godhead of two or three persons arise? The story of the emergence of this new, alien, and massively influential belief system is remarkable.